Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Masses podcast by Katie Bourne. Katie is a clinical psychologist who qualified from the University of Liverpool in 2014. Katie has a special interest in working psychologically to support individuals living with long-term conditions. For the past six years, Katie has worked clinically in HIV care at North Manchester. Until last January, she also worked clinically at Manchester Foundation Trust in their regional unit. Katie currently works part-time as a lecturer on the Clinical Psychology Clinical Doctorate Programme at Lancaster University. Katie has a wealth of experience both working in the field of HIV care, sleep and education. So I'm delighted that Katie is here to talk to us today about a pressing topic as many listeners will know which is close to my heart. That is of sleep and sleep within HIV care. So I'm delighted, Katie, to welcome you today to talk about sleep and HIV. Thank you for agreeing to be part of the podcast to talk about sleep in the context of HIV care. Now, I'm mindful that this is something that we're both extremely passionate about. Um, some would say it's bordering on a bit of an obsession <laughs> for me. So thank you so much um, for joining us today to have this great conversation. Oh, thank you for having me, Michelle. I'm excited to have a chat today. So just thinking about HIV and um, sleep... Um, the past couple of years have been a significant challenge for everybody involved in HIV care, in particular people living with HIV accessing care services. I know we're trying to, you know, we're, we're seeing like um, a return to, to, to what would be normal. But over the pandemic, we kind of noticed a lot of um, kind of the prevalence of sleep within the general population was raised. Um, and also there was a significant prevalence of psychological well-being challenges experienced by people living with HIV. I know this is something that we've talked about a lot with regards to the emerging sleep issues um, within the context of HIV. So I'm just wondering for our listeners, are you able to provide a brief overview of what what we mean by sleep health and why it is important? Yeah, I know that's that's a, that's a really good question, a big one <laughs> to start with. So yeah, what, what do we mean by sleep health? I think honestly, 
I'm not sure how well that is defined and it's something that needs to be better defined because I think traditionally rather than focusing on sleep health research and medicine has been more focused on the presence of sleep disorders or problems but I guess the issue is that when you when you only sort of focus on like you know is there a particular problem here it leads to quite a narrow focus on those particular symptoms or issues um, and a medical treatment and often doesn't sort of focus on that sort of wider multi-dimensional nature of sleep so if sleep doesn't occur in a vacuum because um, I often think that you can't understand sleep without thinking about you know, at the time that people have when they're awake too. And I think, you know, what you talked about there with the pandemic, that's a really great example, isn't it? That actually there was something wider going on at a bigger level than all of us that was impacting on our sleep. So, yeah, I think I think there needs to be more. I think we need to be thinking about more than just what's going on in our sleep. We need to think about all the things that impact on our sleep too. So I think obviously traditionally when we think about quote unquote good normal sleep I know your listeners can't hear my air quotes but I'm, I'm doing them with my fingers <laughs> um, we may be thinking about you know are people having an adequate amount of sleep to get through their stages of sleep so when we go to sleep we go through different stages um uh, they're broadly sort of broken down into REM sleep which are rapid eye movement sleep that's when we're dreaming and non-REM sleep so we're not dreaming um, and they're both important for different aspects of our well-being, you know, in terms of sort of psychological and physiological restore, like restorative processes. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're thinking about, you know, are people getting enough of that? But uh, And is there anything that's happening whilst people are asleep that's interrupting that? So I guess this is a t- traditional focus on sleep, if you like. So is does sleep look quote unquote normal as anything disrupting that when we're asleep? So are people are people having not going through all the stages of sleep as we'd expect are people having their sleep interrupted by particular sleep issues like sleep apnea where people might um, stop breathing in the night and then have to wake themselves up slightly um so there's there is it is important to look at that and look for particular things that might be going wrong so to speak with sleep when it's happening but we've also got to think about so when we think about sleep health and having good sleep we've got to think about all those wider things that might get in the way of that um, so, you know, are people getting the opportunity to have an adequate amount of sleep? Are there kind of psychological or social issues that are impacting on a, someone's ability to sleep? Are there sort of wider societal or, um, you know, issues that, are, that impact on on, what, on how people are sleeping and, and when they're sleeping? And so, uh, so, yeah, I think when we think about good sleep health, it's, it's thinking about all those stages. So it's kind of, kind of Yes, thinking about that more sort of individual level of is there anything particularly going on with sleep that's problematic, then opening up sort of wider and thinking about are there any bigger issues at a bigger level, at a higher level that's going on and how do we sort of look at that and to have like good sleep health across the nation, I suppose. You also asked a little bit about kind of, um, uh, you know, why it's important. Um, I guess one thing that we do know and it is really clear is that poor sleep is associated with a whole range of negative outcomes that can pretty much impact on any area of your life. So there's lots of evidence that poor sleep directly impacts on physical health. So people who have poor sleep are more likely to have issues with things like hypertension or diabetes. And uh, there's just an increased rate uh, mortality rate overall in people who have poor sleep. There's also evidence that it's linked to psychological well-being. So people who are not satisfied with their sleep are more likely to be depressed. And poor sleep, uh, particularly in those who have nightmares, has been linked to increased risk of suicide and suicidal thoughts and behaviours. And then socially, I think everyone can imagine how um, poor sleep can impact on your day to day. So it's going to reduce your cognitive function, meaning that people are more likely to have accidents at work or on the road. They might struggle in work just to get their jobs done and that can lead to 
again, more psychological distress or financial issues. Um, and people, I guess it impacts on your sort of social life. So there's a, there's lots of evidence that people who have a poor sleep are kind of more socially isolated. So, yeah, in a kind of whistle-stop tour, I think <laughs> that's trying to hopefully start to open up that kind of ideas and thoughts around why 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 we, why we are so obsessed with sleep and why we are so focused on thinking about how to improve it. Well, thank you for sharing such a comprehensive overview of sleep and sleep health. And I think you're right, you know, you touched on the fact that we talk a lot about sleep disorders or when our sleep isn't okay. But actually, do we really focus on health and how we support ourselves to have good sleep patterns as well? So thank you for for articulating that um, as well. So you talked about um, quite a lot of things there for our listeners that will be interested in. Thinking about um, sort of apnea and nightmares and and disorders like that. So I'm just wondering for our listeners who aren't familiar with this aspect of care, how would we measure sleep, Katie? What what does that look like? So I have, and you've mentioned, you know, the psychological aspects and the functional aspects. Why on on a level understand what it means not to be sleeping very well um but actually how would we measure that well i think there's, there's actually lots and lots of different ways to measure sleep um and it depends on what you want to look at so i guess that's where it can be quite um important to pick pick the right measure for you in, in any situation and i can broadly break them down to a few different categories to go over some things so things that our listeners might find particularly helpful are some of the self-report measures that exist because they might be some things that they might want to think about using themselves um, and again, with those, you can maybe break them down into two sort of separate groups. So there's some self-report measures that are more like general screens. So these can be really useful if you aren't sure what's going on or, you know, you're not sure if there's any sleep issues. You might want to start and think about a general screen. So these might be things like uh, the PSQI, so that's the Pittsburgh Sleep Questionnaire Index, I think. <laughs> um, and um, what's, I'm trying to think of some other ones. There's the sleep disorder checklist I can I don't know if you've got any way of um sending like giving information to your listeners I don't know if there's like links you can put in your bio or anything like that I can put put some references to these um but what these these sorts of measures do is they um they ask a lot of wide-ranging questions about sleep so I guess it's assuming maybe assuming you're not quite sure what's going on at all so they might ask questions related to lots of different symptoms people might be experiencing. So they ask questions around how, you know, um, how people are getting to sleep. So do they fall asleep easily or are they staying awake for a long time? Um, are they waking up early and can't get back to sleep? So those sorts of things might be tapping into if they've got insomnia type issues. Then they might also ask around, you know, are people um, uh sort of snoring loudly and waking with headaches or have a feeling like they're choking it all in the night and that might be tapping into could they have um sleep apnea um it might ask if people are um have lots of nightmares and again obviously that's asking about nightmare disorder so these general screens really help you if you're not quite sure what's going on start to maybe unpick some of that sleep sort of sleep and what, what it might be relating to um, and often the other part that they have is is it's not just about um, are you having difficulties? It's, it's what is the impact on that? So often, you know, I th- and I think 
a lot of people probably listen to this are used to thinking about this in in their own clinical work with the with the, with, with the sort of difficulties they work with it's it's one thing to be experiencing a particular medical maybe symptom it's another thing of whether that's a problem or not so some people might say well yeah actually I don't get to sleep till late and I'll sleep in but that suits me because I don't it doesn't have any impact on my day and I'm fine with that and that's when I want to sleep other people might be thinking might say yeah I'm really struggling to get to sleep but and then I also have to get up early and so I'm not getting enough sleep and it's really problematic for me and so what what the other part of self-report measures often do is unpick that kind of uh the, the impact on function and well-being and I think that's really important to to bring together um, to really understand I guess the impact that sleep's having on people to, and and is, is it causing people a lot of distress and problems if their sleep's not if they're not having the sleep they want um and then other self-report measures that exist there'll be there's lots that are right kind of disorder specific so there is say for the isi which is like the uh, insomnia um sleep index um or the stop bang which is a measure of sleep uh, sleep apnea which is and it's an acronym relating to all the major symptoms um so so yeah there's there's those self self-report measures and sometimes it's about if you're not sure what's going on or and you're, you 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 want to try and unpick it a little bit maybe it's about using one of those general screen, screens and your sort of normal sort of clinical curiosity and your questioning if you're thinking oh I've, I think we, there's something particularly going on here and I want to know whether it's kind of at a level significant enough to, to do anything about it you might want to look for some of those disorder specific measures um, and then on the other hand the other sort of major group is more like I guess what you might call some of your more objective sort of physiological measures which are often used sort of as a confirmatory um so as part of uh, confirmatory clinical work um, within specific sleep services and these are things where yeah when one if, if someone was referred to a sleep service because people were concerned that they had issues they might do some of these tests and assessments to check you know yeah does this like meet the clinical threshold so you have things like um oximetry so that's when people wear a little kind of it looks like a little watch device with a little clip that goes over your finger and what that's doing is just measuring your oxygen levels um, overnight and if people have um and they usually do it for a couple of nights and if they see lots of desaturations then they might be thinking ah oh, yes someone might have a sleep apnea type issue here um there's also home sleep studies these are sometimes used more commonly now than oximetry where they will wire people up um just well they said consent people can do it at home now again with the pandemic you saw lots of um very creative and flexible ways of uh providing clinical care occurring so people and it's sleep services were recording videos to show people how to wire themselves up and they'd be sending them out in the post so they can measure it but again this is usually looking at things like sleep apnea um and then there's some sort of more sort of bigger tests that sometimes are done that need to be done in hospitals um like the polysomnography or psg sometimes seen as and this is where people are wired up all over the shop and it's looking at lots it's taking loads of different physiological measures so it's looking it'll be looking at your oxygen levels but also like your heart rate your brain waves um it'll be looking at how much you move but it's different parts of your body move and i guess it's often that's often thought of like the absolute gold standard of measuring a sleep issue because um it just takes so many specific measures across your body that it, it's quite good for differential diagnosis of like ah right yes yes this person is having lots of wakes but is it because they're having sleep apneas because their breathing's impacted or are they having something like a periodic limb movement like restless legs and it's a twitching that's waking them up or are they having some sort of um are they waking and like doing sleepwalking and things like that um 
so because often it's often recorded too so they can really like measure like uh, me- measure everything that's going on and matching up with any sort of external symptoms um and another sort of one that's often done in hospitals is something called an um uh, multi-latency sleep test or mlst which is like same same as the psg so it's a psg done overnight but then also they people stay in for the next day and they are given four four little nap periods and they see how quickly they fall asleep and if they get into REM sleep because that's looking for um if people having narcolepsy so see if people can just fall asleep uh, more than more than usual and then quickly so yeah so I don't know if that if you if that answers the question or if there's anything else you wanted to you hoping to know about types of measuring sleep or how we do about it that's brilliant, Casey. And I think just listening to you, then it just articulates the complexity of sleep and, you know, all the different areas in which it can go wrong, but also some some areas in which we can help provide support in order to kind of really identify what's going on for the people we're providing care for. So that's brilliant. So I will pop the um, some of the references in the show description, which is brilliant. Um, I just thought of one thing I missed, actually, um, a really obvious one, sleep diaries. <laughs> so, and these can be really helpful. Again, going back to that sort of general thing, if you're not sure what's going on, and also going back to that idea of multi-dimensional sleep, sleep diaries can be a really great way of looking, I guess, um, what's how people are sleeping. So it can help you spot, like, actually, are people, like, not just, you know, how, how long they're sleeping for or if, or if they're saying they can't get to sleep or you can look at what times they're getting to sleep what sort of things they're doing around sleep um, might help you think about any of those wider factors that could be impacting on people's sleep in terms of actually is there other particular um, sort of behavioural patterns they're in and, and and finding out what's driving that, you know, are, are there reasons that they're not being able to get to bed? Um, are there, you know, are there other other things to do with their, um, I don't know, anything sort of else around sort of uh, diet or or, you know, caffeine intake or, anything like that that could, or alcohol intake that could be impacting on sleep so sleep diaries again can be a really useful tool in that kind of data gathering stage um and also I think often people find it quite useful themselves when they do it it's quite reflective because so sometimes I think people aren't necessarily aware of what their sleep looks like so it can be a really useful tool for people as well um, themselves when they're when they're filling it in to, to have something to reflect on about what's going on with their sleep definitely I kind of concur with that sometimes just the process of writing things down and you know, we I rely so much on my memory, which over the over time is not particularly that great anymore. So actually, just asking somebody to write down the di- write down um, a diary, and also it provides people with an opportunity to write down what matters to them. You know, we talk a lot about on HIV matters about learning to measure what matters to people. And thanks for sharing that comprehensive overview of what tools are available um, to people to help kind of really unpick what's going on for people with this really important aspect um, of care. So Katie, we mentioned at the start that you, you've got quite a, a unique background um, working in HIV care, working in sleep services as well. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, what challenges are we now seeing for people with regards to this aspect of care? I think some of the challenges um, that uh, come with regards to accessing care and providing care for people around sleep is that around that issue really needing to sleep, to shift from focusing on sleep disorders to sleep help. 
health, sorry, because I think actually that's what creates quite a gap in services. So there are sleep services that are brilliantly set up uh, for specific sleep disorders. Um, often the most the most sort of prevalent um, sort of care you'll find is for sleep apnea. Um, and that's often because it's that is kind of a, it's a, both a sleep and respiratory disorder. So, so uh, as, as, I, um, as I'm sure all our listeners are kind of aware that the NHS looks different all over the country, the way things are set up. But quite often sleep services come under respiratory because that is going to be the main, sort of the biggest um, sleep issue that uh, that people face. So, so I suppose as a bit of an aside, it might be worth um, thinking about that, people being aware of that and thinking about is there, is there room within their clinical care to think about how we might just might just check in on that because that might be something worth sort of keeping an eye on in, in the people that you're working with um but sort of going back to my point it's that um so yeah th- those services exist those very specific issues around say sleep apnea or narcolepsy or sort of something like that where they can do so specific tests but what about the individuals who are experiencing this of multifaceted sleep, sleep issues that are not either not quite meeting diagnostic criteria for a sleep service or where there's wider impacts on their sleep. And so it's not that, not that there's necessarily a sleep disorder per se. There's lots of things going on in their lives that are um, impacting on their ability to sleep, whether it's um, ill health in other areas sort of pain or or other health issues that are, that's disturbing their sleep or medications that disturb their sleep that they're on for other things whether it's people who are experiencing high levels of stress or are you know have um have sort of childcare or work issues that impact on their sleep um who um you know different cultures and different societies there might be periods of time where sleep's more difficult due to um other things going on sort of thing um and that's a really sort of generic bad explanation but there's I guess I'm trying to say there's lots of reasons why sleep can be interrupted and um and and also what's going on in people's the waking time as I said you know we've not talked we've talked about the idea that the two sides are the same coin so you know what's happening in people's waking hours and how does that impact on their sleep um from a health sort of population health point of view um so I think that's one of the challenges is what what how do we support people that are in, in that sort of wider group so I think where, the, where there's an obvious sleep problem, so to speak, what's going on with during sleep, I think it perhaps is a bit more of a clearer pathway if you find out about what your sleep services are and how to refer. But where there's that, um, where there's all those sort of wider issues around that's not just at the sort of individual ill health level, you know, I think that's one of the big challenges. How do we support, I guess, I think there needs to be a shift to sort of health promotion in sleep. How do we promote good sleep um, at a wider level? And that has to take into account lots of factors in terms of not just telling people to go to bed for eight hours and stay asleep you know it's about how does you know do do are we set up in a society to allow that to happen um and what sort of the you know are are, do we have a role in sort of supporting people to make sort of i guess choices that are during the waking hours that are healthy for the for their sleep Thank you for for sharing that. Just kind of listening to you just made me think about my own clinical practice and thinking about the role of the nurse and um, other healthcare professionals that kind of have clinics and supporting people with kind of some of the complexities that are involved in living with HIV and also just living in this world in general. So I'm just wondering, from your point of view, how do you see the role of the nurse evolving within this area of care? 
Yeah. Well, I think that um, specialist nurses, I mean, especially in HIV care, can be like a really key point of contact um, uh, when it comes to beginning maybe to recognise signs and symptoms that all kind of maybe not well. So service users often have a really good relationship with their clinical nurses. Um, and that means that they might feel comfortable talking about their wider difficulties. So I think, therefore, it's like a really great opportunity, or I wonder if it's a good opportunity, um, for some of those initial conversations just to find out, you know, how is your sleep? Is it, you know, is there, is there, are you sleeping well? Do you feel like, you know, do you feel like you're getting enough sleep? Do you feel like you're refreshed in the day? Um, you know, just to start to really sort of just start to explore a little bit, like, is, is there a problem here or not? Um, and that's where maybe some of those, like, just those really open questions, like, there's, there's been some research at Stone just simply asking, you know, do you, you know, do you, simple questions like, do you sleep well or not can, can be quite, um, can correlate quite well with then people scoring about, you know, on sort of screening questionnaires of, of if they're a quote unquote good sleeper or not. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so maybe there's just those initial basic conversations or maybe some, some of those, those general screens or sleep diaries. Um, they could potentially be an area for that. And I'm not suggesting that nurses or other clinical staff in HIV are meant to solve this problem, um, as they're obviously incredibly busy professionals uh, with expert skills that are needed in managing their HIV care. But um, but maybe it's a chance to maybe, like I say, just check out some sleep health and direct people to support sort of as as needed. So for our listeners, because I know this is conversations that we have all the time around kind of sleep and increasing our knowledge on sleep. And I know when I first started kind of thinking about this sleep in a more formal way, you was great at signposting me to resources, Casey. So I'm just wondering what kind of help or what kind of resources are out there that our listeners may want to kind of access to support their development of knowledge around this i think if you are if you're interested in sleep i think one of the maybe the best accessible um resources um is there's a book called why sleep matters by matthew walker um and i think it's a really great book for it's easy it's easy to read it's easy to understand it's kind of it's quite an enjoyable read as well. So in, in terms of like, you know, people are really busy and got lots of other things going on. I think it's quite a nice book. You can just sort of pick up and put down sometimes. It doesn't feel too much like, it doesn't really feel like work. And it what it does is it really goes over kind of the fundamentals of sleep. So at the start of the podcast, I, I think I referenced talking about sleep, the stages of sleep and the different stages of sleep. If you're interested, this book will explain, okay, actually when you go to sleep, you know, it's not just a, it's not like just a, a, a switch that's flicked, you know, I'm awake or I'm asleep. There's lots of different things that go on in your sleep at different stages that you're at and, and what that normally looks like and what I kind of say like a quote-unquote normal cycle of sleep would look like throughout the night. Um, it then also goes on to tell you people about, um, I guess, all the things that we do and don't know about sleep because actually there's still a lot of mystery. We still There's still lots of things we feel like we don't actually know why we sleep in some ways. There's, there's lots of evidence to start to show us in what ways it's helpful and restorative and it, it makes that brilliant point that, it, you know, we you've got to assume it's super important because otherwise, you know, from a, a functional point of view, if you looked at it, how is it helpful to be unconscious for a third of your day? You know, if you're 24 hours, you know, it, it makes you more uh, prone to, you know, especially if you think about it from a um, evolutionary point of view, it makes you you're very vulnerable when you're asleep, <laughs> when we have like predators prowling around um, and um, you're not productive. Um and so yes it you know you know sleep's important and it go it tells you like it starts to tell you like what what the things we do know now about why it's important how is it restorative how does it help with our um with our learning with our processing of emotional situations 
uh, all the physical restorative stuff that goes on. Um, and so it's really interesting read from that point of view. And it also does a really hammer home all the ways in which poor sleep can be detrimental. Um, you might want to think about when you choose to read this. I actually picked this book up when I was um, pregnant. So I got it from the um, from the Smiths in London Euston. I was just, I'd been away with my mum and I saw it. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting to me because I work, work and sleep. And then I was reading it and I was just thinking, reading all these things, I was like, just thinking about all the sleep deprivation that was due to come with my impending arrival. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I can never drive. I'm going to be in danger on the road and I'm going to keep my baby safe. Um, so yes, maybe, maybe like, you know, think about when you want to read it. If, you, if you're struggling with your sleep at that moment, maybe wait till you're feeling good. But um, yeah, but on serious, it's, it's a really, really interesting book. I think you've read it yourself, haven't you? So I think, yeah. yeah. Definitely. It is, a, it is a great, great read. And again, I'll put the link in the bio. And I think for me, it just, it just kind of brought everything together. And I agree with what you say, that kind of medical, empowering people with medical knowledge. And there is a skill to that. And he does it really well in the book, that he gives some really great facts and information in a way that's easy to digest yeah. as well so, and it's yeah. also there's a couple like thinking about it more think about that stuff the stuff I've talked about so far around maybe shifting your ideas from sort of sleep disorders to sleep health there's a couple of papers that I've read recently and because I think you might be able to tell from the fact that maybe I'm not articulating it in the best way it's something I've only really been considering more recently and I think I think it makes lots of sense especially I guess in terms of I think it's probably lots of um different people working in health services like uh, staff working in HIV care like nurses working in HIV care but also in other services where they're seeing lots of difficulties with sleep problems and thinking oh how well what do I, what do we do here what's the what's the what's the answers here and that, and that um so yeah some of that ideas around sleep, shifting away from sleep disorders to sleep health and I've got a couple of references around that that I can give to you to share with your readers it might help them understand a little bit more about that in a more comprehensive way than I'm detailing here um, and also maybe some links if people are um, interested in I guess some stats around sleep in HIV particularly um, when we were doing some work together Michelle I think we came across a few papers didn't we ourselves that had already maybe nicely summarized some of that stuff around maybe looking at sleep disorders and sleep issues in HIV more specifically in general and just giving that kind of overview so maybe we could share a couple of those links as well yeah no no definitely yeah thanks for that Katie that's brilliant and also just um for our listeners we have done a comprehensive scope and review looking at what's out there within HIV care and um, we're hoping to publish that in HIV nursing so as soon as that's available I can sign those people to that and the reason why I'm sharing that is not like shameless self-promotion and I hope our listeners are, are used to me now and, and know that that's not something I would do but just for me it was a really good we we kind of looked at everything out there about measuring sleep within HIV care and I learned so much from doing that that um we've managed to consolidate in 3,000 words which was no mean feat so again it's if people are really interested in this and want to develop their knowledge in this we can definitely signpost them to that article when it's published as well So Katie, we've talked a lot about sleep and I think, you know, we have off off podcast chats about this and we've, and like I've just mentioned, we've done that great 
um, extensive piece of work that I don't think either of us knew how big it was going to be until we started. Um, we've talked within that we've talked about the prevalence of sleep and psychological well-being, and I really what I'm going to take away from today's podcast is this idea of what's happening to people while they're in the waking state, because I think sometimes we don't link that to our sleep states as well. So just before we get to know you a little bit better on the HIV Matters podcast, I'm just going to hope that I one day have a magic wand and can go back in time and grant some of these wishes. So this is time for your magic wand question. So if money, resources and time were not an issue, what would you like to see um, with regards to issues of sleep and psychological care being implemented into HIV care? Um, wow. So yeah, big, big question. I think uh, the time, money and resource part, if that was limitless, I think a lot of that would come in the form of generally having more staff who are being paid their worth so that also they have more time to look into these things. And perhaps so, you know, if people were, you know, if we, if we were well staffed and well paid and everyone, yeah, then perhaps it would allow for more time to focus on some of the psychosocial aspects of care and whether that would be allowing the specialists to do that as part of their role. Because again, there's just so much skills there, and um, in terms of, I guess, people be having so much experience and skills they've developed over the years, and understanding uh, what the needs are within the uh, within psychosocial care within uh, people living with HIV, and also that kind of um, don't know how to just that the, the 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 warmth and empathy that exists there. It's such a wonderful connection. I think if people had more time to do to do that, it would be. It, it would be amazing so whether it be that or whether it be about having more psychological professionals as part of teams that so that actually the tool maybe because maybe people would prefer actually although they've got an interest in, and the abilities in that they might they would prefer to be like well actually if we were able to have more of an mdt team then people could work together um and you know we could have more sorts whether it be psychologists or other sort of psychological professionals working alongside the nursing teams prior to that joined up care because um, I think that from a sleep point of view, as I've said, I think that will, what that would allow for was that initial exploration of what's going on with people's sleep and making sure that they're getting the sleep that they're needed. Um, from a sleep point of view, I'm not sure if that should look like specific sleep care in HIV or not. I'd be interested to know what you think. Or again, if it's the idea of having better sleep care at, at a population level, um, that that people were, you know, that if that it meant that if HIV teams were able to explore that more, they'd be able to link them, you know, support people to access that that level of care because I think it's important to recognize that there's lots of things that are causing people to have poor sleep health and it's not necessarily at that individual level um you know it's, there's so many sort of wider changes and support that's needed at that sort of those wider higher level system levels um I think the same really just applies for general psychological care too it's just that idea of having I guess more more time and resources to make that available um, and flexibly because I think it's something about person-centered care isn't it particularly in psycho so for the psychosocial care point of view because if it's if it's kind of related if it's psychological difficulties related to their H, to, to living with HIV or their HIV care a lot of people prefer well whilst there's a lot of great psychological services out there in mental health services that are staffed by wonderful people who can offer great support a lot of people prefer to discuss those things within the HIV teams because sometimes it just feels they feel safer and comfortable um so yeah I guess it's like having that, that that support to help people as as needed and I think the other thing I'd, I'd like to see is getting in that helping earlier and again I think that's 
an issue to do with not having enough care that sometimes you know when it comes to referring people for psychological support it's at the point where it's that there's a real significant need and I wonder if it's that being able to have adequately resourced services that we could maybe um do some of that stuff around I guess helping people earlier on you know that you know not pathologizing adjusting to living with HIV like actually acknowledging that might be a difficult transition for some people and offer them support on that transition rather than waiting for it to become a, a significant issue but that's really difficult when there's a when there's not enough sort of uh, time in the day and or staff to do it definitely so yeah thank you for that Katie and I think you've just sort of articulated what I kind of struggle with sometimes like need for specialist support opposed to kind of generic support and again I really love the idea of this proactive psychological well-being and support as well so often because of the way services are resourced and there's there's never enough time in the day we're kind of more reactive but you know that proactive um, support I would definitely if I had a magic wand definitely advocate for that, that anticipating of distress yeah and I know you're you're very interested yourself in sort of compassionate focused approaches and I guess it's something that's on my mind at the moment wondering I guess if there could be some stuff that's worked into that like that because it's such a it's such an intuitive and uh, approach it makes sense of people's distress in a way that's kind of really puts it that along the continuum you know this is a system these are systems we all have they're all triggered in different ways there's nothing weird or wrong about having these responses it's not it's a natural human response and understanding that what you know if people struggle and, and feel like they're into threat mode and are struggling with something we you know we can really understand how that fits within the whole human experience and I wonder if there's I think there's something particularly in that to be harnessed in those sort of like maybe low level early intervention type care like approaches that might like I say might stop it get to the point where people it might, not for everybody but for some people it might be a helpful way of helping support them through those Sort of those early times of uh, of being diagnosed and adjusting mm-hmm. to them with a health condition, you know, are there are there ways that we can support mm-hmm. um, support people with those sort of uh, yeah, that's something I'm quite interested in following up a little bit at the moment. Well, I, I guess this is going to be a part two, everybody, for the podcast. <laughs> um, as we found out with Chris Irons, we've we've got another project going on around compassion focused approach, and I kind of I'm sensing that this is something myself and Katie may choose to work on outside of this podcast to think about actually how do we harness different approaches um, to support people within with HIV in a person centered way. So I have had the pleasure of knowing you for some years now, but just to kind of help our podcast um, listeners get to know you a bit better, can you share with our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care? Mm, yeah, um, self-care. I think I think one thing I try and do is get a good balance of spending, trying to spend time with the different people who kind of I guess nourish me if you like or, or you know you know contribute to my, my well-being whether that's trying to see different family different friends time um, and equally time on time on my own you know sometimes I think it's like having that that real nice balance of of uh, different experiences and I think it's something to do with uh, being connected to other people and having shared experiences and particularly when it comes to I guess 
either work life balance and work stresses or stress is another part of your life you know to have yes we need to kind of sometimes we need to be proactive and 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 work on improving certain situations but also it's great to have some other space where it's like uh there's a permission not to think about that and not to talk about that um and I think yeah allowing allowing making sure you keep some safe some space safe for that so when you go if you're going through difficult times or just you know just the daily grind sometimes it's really important to think actually this uh, yes because you can only you can only be productive and focus for so long anyway so actually saying to yourself even if there's something going on actually uh if I'm, if I'm going to do this well I need to switch off for a little while so then thinking that right go and spend time with people and because I think I think I find that easier I find it much more easier to be mindful when I'm with people so if I'm doing something like uh, social and talking I find it easier to switch off if I've got something going on than if I try and like watch a film or read then I find like my mind can wander much easier and go back to all right what's going on so I think for a boundaries point of view yeah I, I like I like spending time with people and sort of yeah and enjoying that really helps me sort of stay more grounded at the time yeah, that that human connectedness yeah. and again yeah I'm pretty much the same if I'm watching a film I can drift off but actually being present with somebody is is a gift yeah. in itself yeah, it is. Can you share with us a book that you have been reading? Mm. <laughs> I thought that question I was like, oh no, I'm not really reading much at the moment. <laughs> I'm a tiny bit into a book called Carter Beats the Devil. I couldn't even tell you who it's by. Glenn David Gold. And I actually, a friend of mine gave it me a very long time ago. So I had um, a friend, Mark, and he used to, for birthdays, he always used to give me like one or two books. And um, it was a really great present because I actually feel like... Um, I don't buy. I don't didn't buy from a fiction point of view. I didn't buy myself lots of books. I always got felt like, oh, well, I don't know what's good. I don't know, what, you know. And I got really paralysed by that, thinking, well, what if I buy a book that's not good and I don't like it? And which is kind of when I think about it, it's quite silly, isn't it? Because you could just be like, well, just put it down, don't read it, give it to a charity shop, get another book. But for some reason, it was a real block to me buying books. But he used to buy me books, and um, he's got really good literary taste, so I always enjoyed them. So this is one that he bought me a while ago. I think I've read through some of the others. He also bought me, what is it, uh, a book called The Lonnie. I can't remember, or The Lonnie. I can't remember who that's by. And Little Strangers, Little Stranger by Sarah Waters and Station Eleven, which I think has been really popular and people, they made it into a TV show. But anyway, yeah, I do rest. So I'm partway through that. I'm only just started it, but it seems very good at the moment. But um, I actually spend more time listening to podcasts um because I find that that's something you can do whilst doing other things so you know if you're driving if you're cleaning walking around I really love having a podcast on and um there's a a funny one a comedy one that I really like called I Said No Gifts yeah I think you can get it anywhere I highly recommend that if people are looking for a comedy podcast it's very funny um if people are looking for um something that maybe kind of entertaining but uh also a bit educational there's another one called uh, this podcast will kill you art talks about loads of different like um infectious diseases and other things i mean it might be bread and butter to your to, to people listening to this but like obviously i, I work in hiv care but the way our service is set up i can only i only work people living with hiv so i don't know much around lots of other conditions and um i love learning and it's a, just it's a really interesting way of learning about lots of different things like cholera and dysentery and covid they did things on and so yeah that's another podcast i really like listening to oh thank you so much for sharing that and yeah just to just to relate to you about first of all about the book books and um, then the podcast you know i i got myself to that stage where i was um 
paralysed by choice, thinking, I don't know what if I make a bad decision. I'm very good at reading academic books, but how do I know what to, you know, read that's not? So that's why I kind of introduced that question on here, because I think, gosh, yeah, I, I love, I used to love reading and I still do, but it's kind of finding that book as well. And like you say, you can always put it down, but I'm always thinking, I'm a start finisher, so I, that kind of irritates me. So <laughs> getting a good recommendation. Absolutely right. There's also been times when I've been reading a book and I've not enjoyed it. And and so I'm, and I've stopped it, and it, but it's like I can't pick up another book, so like I'm not finished that. And I think it's something, it's really interesting thing to do, isn't it? It's just it's really catching yourself now, thinking of it like just don't read it, just start another book. What, what's that about? Maybe that's what I'm going to take away from this. Just go buy a book and try and read it. If you don't like it, take it to Oxfam Books and start again. <laughs> yeah, and then just yeah, just finally regarding. Um, podcast I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna check that out because I do love a podcast when I'm doing my jobs around the house and stuff and getting to learn and you know the experts that people have on the show you think gosh yeah that's that's amazing so thank you so much for your sharing of, of that so the last question we was going to ask you was regarding your magic wand question now mindful I asked you that within HIV care um so I'm just going to ask you the same question again but if you feel you've already answered it, that's fine. But if there's another wish that you would like, then hopefully one day I will have the power to do I think within health services in general, without hopefully this isesn't getting too political, feel free to cut it, is just to it's just again tapping into that idea of having enough staff that are paid for the skills and care that they give. And you know, and this is a point that um I know there's been particular professions within the health service more recently that have um been in sort of industrial action and you know with their unions just say that fully support all my colleagues across all professions in the healthcare because the jobs people do are absolutely amazing and I often worry that people uh, that as a wider society people don't appreciate what it's got and I hope it doesn't get to the point that it being gone for people to recognize just how wonderful it is when it's allowed to run as it should um and then I guess more relatedly thinking about it in a wider context I guess I uh, uh one thing I, I if I had a magic wand I think it would be around people to people to be able to put themselves in other people's perspectives a bit e- more easily um and I know there's lots of reasons why that happens I think there's lots of things that bombard us that get our either get our threat systems up legitimately because there's things going up and that makes it harder to, to to do that you know if we feel that we're under threat and we're in some way and I don't necessarily just mean you know immediate harm or danger but you know that that our, our, our way yeah that we're that there's some sort of threat to our kind of well-being and our, our lives as we're living it either whether it's real or whether it's kind of created uh, by some by sort of media hysteria or other things I think that make, it's making it really hard for people to to think about other people and I think it's creating quite an individualistic kind of mentality where really we've all got far far more in common than we have differences and I wish sometimes uh yeah I just think wish that we could have that more kind of collective kind of care for each other well thank you so much for that yeah I completely agree that ability to see the world differently through other people's eyes is was brilliant so thank you so much Katie for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure spending this time with you so for all that from all our listeners thank you so much for joining us on Future Matters thanks for having me Michelle thank you bye
Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.